Hey guys, John Hammontree here, and I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode with Paul Feinbaum. I do want to give a quick note that we recorded this conversation before we learned that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and a few other leagues have decided to shorten their college football seasons. It does affect the conversation slightly, but if anything, it just makes Paul Feinbaum's insight seem that much more prescient. Thanks, guys. Paul Feinbaum has been covering SEC sports longer than I've been alive. Like me, Paul was born in Memphis, Tennessee, before making his way to Birmingham, Alabama. And I can't remember a time in my life when he wasn't on the radio for several hours a day fielding calls about college football from everything else. But he's never experienced a moment like this. A moment without sports, but where sports is at the center of so many explosive conversations right now, involving the pandemic, racial justice, and more. And he's got four hours to fill every afternoon. So how does he decide when to let his audience speak their minds and when it's time to push back? Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today I'm speaking with a man who has been called the King of the South. It's the dream of so many in Alabama. I got an hour to myself with Paul Feinbaum where we discussed his legacy, the TV projects he has in the works, his relationship with his callers, and how he feels about all those stick-to-sports comments. So I'll take my answers on the air on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Paul Feinbaum, thank you for coming on the Reckon interview. I've uh, been uh, waiting for the invitation for a long time. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> it feels a little like, I guess, stepping into the ring with Ali or something. I mean, you, you have been called the King of the South. You are the, the voice people most associate with the South. So it's an honor. Thank you for what you've done, kind of putting Southern radio voices on the map. As we go into this conversation, you know, we're, we're recording today on July 2nd, and this will probably air on July 13th. So a lot could change in the next 11 days. But it seems like something that won't change is the kind of ongoing back and forth conversation about whether or not sports pundits, sports reporters, athletes should quote unquote stick to sports, whether it's coronavirus or it's Black Lives Matter movement. You know, you've gotten a lot of pushback on your show about speaking about these topics, even though you have to fill <laughs> four hours of conversation when there's not actually sports going on. How do you decide, you know, when you're going to correct your callers? How do you decide when you're going to push back? How do you decide when you're going to make a statement about topics like these? I'll tell you a quick story before I get to the actual question. About a week or two into the pandemic, my first newspaper editor called me. <laughs> and, you know, retired Marine editor, the whole thing, really great editor, won a Pulitzer Prize in Mississippi uh, for his Katrina coverage. And he said, listen, I, you don't want to get hear my advice, but I'm going to give it to you. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and he said, get the politics out of your show. I've already heard it on the pandemic and it, it is going to be the destruction of you. I said, well, thank you. And I stuck to it. I did not allow politics to get involved until <laughs> until the George Floyd episode. And I don't say that uh, with a smile. I say it with a frown because that changed everything. It was impossible to keep politics out of a program once that event occurred. And I, I quit trying. Uh, I began offering reasonable conversational opinions, and I have <laughs> heard quite a bit from the audience about how I have jumped the shark and abandoned my roots, whatever they were. But to have two career-defining stories in, in a 13, 14, 15-week period, John, has been uh, unlike anything I've ever encountered. But you just try to do the best you can in answering questions and dealing with dialogue. But when people just start spewing absolute 
racism and bigotry, I, I draw the line. I, I can't, I can't allow that, nor should anyone allow that. Well, and you know, I mean, it's interesting how people frame it as a politics conversation, as if it boils down to Republicans and Democrats. But I mean, it seems like what we're seeing right now, whether it's you know the team in Texas or you know a few years ago in Ferguson, the team in Missouri. You know, athletes are at the heart of this conversation, particularly around, you know, black athletes and George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. We're certainly seeing at the professional level, but it seems like college athletes, and I don't know if it's because of everything being shut down because of the pandemic, but they're certainly realizing they have the power to push universities in directions. You know, University of Alabama, the team released a Black Lives Matter video. It seems like most major teams in the SEC are speaking out now in ways that they weren't after Charlottesville, that they weren't after Charleston, that they weren't after Ferguson. Is that something that is maybe affecting your audience and you as a host? No question. The Mississippi flag would still be up if it wasn't for Kylan Hill, the running back from Mississippi State. The SEC, the NCAA, all the uh, boilerplate press releases from the ivory towers did not bring that flag down. One player did, in my opinion. And and I, and I, I love it. I mean, I was a rebellious youth myself many years ago. And I haven't always been on the side of the player, so to speak, but I am now. And I think as you grow up, as you age, as you mature, as you listen to me, it's an important story. It's maybe the most important story going on right now, other than whether we will or will not have college football. It has sparked conversation that that is unprecedented than what I do and really what everyone does. And, uh, you know, you're right about the political part. All I'm doing is letting people discuss it. And the only thing that I'm not doing is allowing things I have allowed in the past. That's just hatred on the program. I mean, if you want to spew hatred toward Auburn's football program, I don't really care or Alabama's, but you're not going to get away with it in this conversation. On the topic of coronavirus, I mean, that's another one where in some ways it's been framed that to do nothing, the status quo would be not political, but to talk about possibly changing or canceling the college football season or altering it in some form and reducing crowds. That apparently is a political decision. But, you know, what we've seen from Rudy Gobert, the player who tested positive in the NBA, is still experiencing symptoms, you know, 80 days later. And he's an athlete in the prime of his life, top shape. We've got the NBA, who I think I read is spending $150 million to preserve this bubble in Orlando. And, you know, we're supposed to believe that a bunch of Alabamians and a bunch of Los Angelinos are going to fly to Dallas where cases are on the rise and bars are shut down and play a football game to start the season. I wonder how that decision could not be a political decision when it puts unpaid college athletes' bodies on the line. You are correct. And we are in a, uh, a narrow window here, at least in college athletics. And really, almost everything I say about college athletics can mirror everything else in society, whether it's the opening of school, whether it's the opening of everything. But really, the decisions made now are going to resonate and reverberate for many, many years to come, because if they make the wrong decision, and the, wrong, the only wrong decision is being arrogant, carefree, and trying to squeeze as much money out of people as they can. And I, I'm not for or against a college football season. As a sportscaster, I'm for it, uh, in, course, in, yeah. as long as it's done correctly. But I'm not for it just to do it. I mean, I, I work for the biggest sports media company in the world, but it is not my job to make those decisions. They will make those decisions in conjunction with everyone else. But the thing that has offended me the most is the misguided optimism that college administrators have disseminated to their constituency. And I understand that the political aspect of this doesn't want to hear bad news, but don't come out as 
people have done recently, um, you know, maybe within the last two to three weeks, and, and say, we expect, we hope to have full stadiums on Labor Day weekend. I mean, that's a crock. I mean, that's not happening. And you know it, and I know it, whether we even have games that weekend or, you know, to be determined. But I think that's the problem. We hear that and fans hear what they want to hear. And by the way, six weeks ago, I was an optimist too. Around the time of Memorial Day, it looked like everything was trending the right direction. But that was before anybody showed up on campus. Well, and and there are rumors, you know, it's tough to know how true they are, but of teenagers in Tuscaloosa specifically going to parties to get COVID. There's a party in Texas where I think 300 people were exposed, you know, playing beer pong in Texas. College students are going to party. It is part of the college experience and it would be very hard to control that spread. And there are faculty who are in vulnerable demographics. There are probably teenagers who don't yet realize that they have pre-existing conditions that might be in vulnerable demographics, it certainly becomes tough to contain. A lot of your audience, your show is the highlight of a lot of people's day. They tune in four hours. I mean, that's more time than even Fox News or MSNBC or CNN probably get with a lot of people in Alabama and around the South. And some of your demographic is probably in that vulnerable population. Do you feel any sort of obligation to communicate the seriousness to them? Or do you feel like your role is just to facilitate a conversation? I think I do have a responsibility. And uh, I've been there from the beginning, not to give you a long discourse to simple questions. I guess I get that all the time on on my show. (laughs) But during the football season, John, I I travel five days a week, or I did. I spent three nights a week in New York, one night in Connecticut, and one night at an SEC town. And somewhere around the late November, early December, I got sick. And my wife's a physician. She thinks there's a every Everyone thinks they had this, by the way, now in the right, fall. Right, right. But being in New York as much as I was, I'm not saying I did. I don't know what I have. I was sick. And, and I never stopped traveling because, hey, peak of the football season. I'm not going to a cave in now, but I literally limped onto planes for a month or two and just somewhat crashed when the season was over. And I say all this because... When this thing started breaking in early March, I was about to go to Nashville for the SEC basketball tournament. And my wife said, do you really think you ought to go? I mean, I'm in my 60s. I just came off a pretty, uh, you know, whatever I had, I had. And I said, what do you think? I mean, I have a political science degree. You tell me, you've got a zillion years in medicine. She said, I wouldn't go. And I didn't go. And by the way, at the time, there was only one case in Nashville. I, I told my boss, I'm not going to go. And, you know, they're... Really? <laughs> for for this? <laughs> of course, by you know you know how this ended. Uh, by, yeah. by Thursday morning, everyone was uh, coming home, and part because of that, I was maybe a little more in tune with what was happening. And the audience, I'll never forget that first day. That you know, Wednesday night was Rudy Gobert, and Thursday was it had been declared a pandemic, and I had people just fighting with me about this. This is the flu. It's not even that. Same thing that you've heard. Of course. Ad nauseum 8 million times since then. But I fought it. I said, no, I, I don't know. I mean, this thing sounds pretty serious. So I started with that, but I've never tried to tell people what to do. If you can't figure out whether or not to wear a mask or not, you don't need me to tell you. I've never tried to tell people what to believe, what not to believe. However, I do have a say in programming the show. We have overloaded on epidemiologists, and I let them tell the story versus me. And, and, and I feel comfortable with that. 
Well, we were talking a little bit about college athletes kind of recognizing their power, but it's also been interesting to see professional athletes, you know, Stephen Curry hosting an interview with Dr. Fauci on Instagram and, you know, athletes kind of stepping into that role. I mean, I guess everybody's stuck at home, so everybody's suddenly a talk show host. Sure. But it it has been interesting to see people using that platform in some ways, in ways that, you know, a lot of professional organizations and media companies aren't necessarily doing all the time. You mentioned your political science degree, uh, and and it was interesting because you said that people have been angry at you about not sticking to your roots, but your roots are in some ways politics. You know, you started out what covering student government at Tennessee, and when you were a um, young man, I believe that you helped canvass for Al Gore Senior. As you have moved further into your career, do you feel? either external or internal pressure to stay out of politics. I mean, you do have politicians come on your show. It's kind of a place where Mitt Romney stumbled in Alabama coming onto your show. <laughs> and and so you certainly talk to politicians, but as far as I know, you don't make endorsements. I, I don't, and I try to keep it out at all costs. In fact, I've known Doug Jones, like a lot of people in the media, for an extremely long time. We gave him a phrase a couple of years ago. He was, for many, many years, 10, 15 years, the uh, the Feinbaum Show legal analyst. So whenever a big legal <laughs> story would call Doug. And I stayed out of his race for Senate because it wasn't, you know, his opponent sickened me, but that was not really uh, my responsibility to convey that to the public. I knew him. So the, <laughs> Doug, you know, one, it was only the biggest story in the country. I don't need to tell you. You guys covered it pretty uh, aggressively. And he texted me. Uh, I, I didn't even have a chance to uh, send him a congratulatory. And I figured he'll have about 8 million he sent me a note saying, hey, uh, can you believe this? He said, I, I'm available for your show this afternoon. I'm, I said to myself, he is the biggest politician in America today. And we had just had a seminar two days earlier with the president of the company saying, we need to avoid politics. And I, <laughs> I had to tell Doug Jones 13 hours after he accepted the, the victory speech in, in Birmingham that he couldn't come on the Feinbaum show. And it was really a hard thing to do. He later invited me to his swearing in. And he said, I, I'm going to sit you next to Joe Biden. I said, Doug, I said, I mean, my company is going through this stick to sports deal and I am not going to be at my picture on the front page of the New York Times sitting next to Joe Biden and you're swearing in. So my point being, I stay out of it, even if I have a friend. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with Tommy Tuberville, known him a long time. I'm staying out of that. I gave one quote to uh, an AL.com reporter and I said, I'll never do that again because they asked me about Tuberville during his tenure at Auburn. Did he ever do this or that? And I I answered it next thing and I'm in the middle of a political talk show in Birmingham. (laughs) Everybody criticizing me. So I've had dinner with Donald Trump, but I do not discuss, not lately, by the way, (laughs) but I try at all costs. I mean, I, I love it when somebody says you're you're a right-wing conservative, and then the next caller says you're just a die-in-the-world liberal. I mean, I, I frankly try to keep that. I mean, I, and by the, it's hard sometimes, but I will not convey my political views to, to the audience, at least. Assuming that Tommy Tuberville emerges as the Republican nominee, do you think that that possibly becomes a sports story if it becomes Alabama versus Auburn? <laughs> it could. <laughs> yeah, I mean— there are many days, John, when I miss regret not being in Birmingham. I loved it. And we can talk about that in a minute. But that will be one of those days that I will. I mean, even though our program is heard in Birmingham, of course, but that, that will be a tough day not to talk about uh, what's happening in Alabama because it's such a classic uh, situation. And I, I think he's overcome that a little bit. I, I don't know if Doug Jones will run the, the picture of Tuberville raising the six fingers after the six straight wins over Alabama. I know I would, if, but I'm not involved in the campaign. But, uh, you know, I think, I think Tuberville is so far removed from, from that that I don't think people will vote against him because of where he coached. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about your career. You know, you come down to Birmingham in the 80s. You've been covering college football in some capacity since the 70s. So that's what, 40, yes. 40 plus years now? You come to a point in time when it, you quit trying to act like you're still young. Um, and when, <laughs> and when, when I was on the show recently, I said, you've been covering NASCAR for 40 years. I'm like, oh, that's true. I started covering college football in the late 70s at the University of Tennessee and, you know, came to Alabama. I was covering, I think, two years of Coach Bryant. And yeah, I never thought I would be that guy. I was talking to uh, Coach Bryant's grandson recently. I'm friendly with a gentleman named Mark Tyson, whose son plays at Alabama now, Paul Tyson. And we were talking about, this was about two years ago. I had just declared Nick Saban the greatest coach of all time after his last national championship. And, and I said, Paul, oh, I said, with all due respect to your grace, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I, said, I said, you're telling your, your grandfather is Bear Bryant. You're telling me you think Nick Saban's the best guy. He said, yes, I do. I said, well, I feel better then. Cause I, when you cover Bryant for a day or for two or three years, you feel like you've covered the all timer, but I'm pretty lucky in my Alabama days. But I covered a lot of Mike Shula's and Mike DeBose's and Mike Price's as well. Well, and you were always kind of willing. And even in your days, honestly, as, as a Tennessee college reporter, you were always willing to kind of pick at the establishment at the Sacred Cows and things like that. Did you chart out what you kind of dreamed your career would be? I mean, it seems like you got involved with radio pretty early on as a print journalist. You also, you know, published a series of books about some of your best columns. And it seems like you always kind of had bigger ambitions, but you also come across as a pretty humble guy. So did you envision being the what the New Yorker dubbed the king of the South? I had a goal in the early part of my career. And it's the only goal I really, I think, ever had in, in this field. I, I wanted to be at the New York Times by the time I was 30 years old. And I failed. And I really thought it was one of the disappointments of my career because I, I was, I got off to a pretty fast start in Birmingham and started getting calls from newspapers around the country. As that was happening, I was involved in a big story. The newspaper, the Birmingham Post Arrow, we were sued over a series of stories. And it, it cost me a job at the Philadelphia Inquirer in Chicago, whatever. And it took two years to adjudicate the lawsuit. And by the time it was over, my newspaper girl had gone ice cold. And even though we were vindicated, uh, it didn't matter. I mean, you, it's like, you know, you, the accusations uh, on the front page, the uh, apology on page three. And I thought my life was over. I That's uh, all I ever wanted to do was to climb up uh, the, the ladder in newspapers. And, and the Birmingham Post-Herald decided they had spent enough money on legal fees. So they made me a columnist so they could hide behind uh, Times versus Sullivan. I was never quite as good at that uh, as I was as a reporter. And I did that. and. Yeah, I mean, that's what most people uh, that are still alive that remember those days <laughs> refer to. And I had a great time doing it. My first column was the first weekend of the football season in 83, which was the first weekend in 25 years without Coach Bryant. And then that led to pretty much everything else. But no, I never I never dreamed uh, any of this would ever happen because I thought, I quite frankly thought my, my career was over in, in the in the mid-20s that I, I would never get to where I wanted to go. Well, and you, I mean, successfully built what became a SEC media empire in Birmingham, kind of one rung at a time to mix metaphors. You eventually moved the show to Charlotte, North Carolina. How did the show change from Birmingham to Charlotte? It, it was an evolution. The first year, it didn't change very much. I was the first person hired at the SEC network, but I was hired almost a year and a half before the network launched. And it was funny, the commissioner at the time, Mike Slive, after ESPN hired me, we had lunch and he said, would you consider leaving, maybe going up there a year early? I said, for what? He said, I just think it would look better <laughs> that you were living in North Carolina and you wouldn't be in Alabama. 
And of course, it didn't change one thing. I mean, Auburn played for the national championship that year. I mean, Alabama and Auburn have never, never moved off of the, of the scene. So I came up here and the, sh- the show was the same. But when the show went to television in August of 2014, it, d- it did change because, you know, there's 14 schools in the SEC and we were trying to be equitable as a conference network. So uh, I think it evolved, but I don't think it ever quite lost what it was in Birmingham, although I have critics every day saying the show's horrible. It's not the same. (laughs) You don't talk enough about Alabama football, but it seems like we do talk a lot about Alabama football. You know, like you, I was born in Memphis. We moved to Birmingham in 92. So, I mean, your, your show was the show on the radio. In fact, I asked some buddies of mine, I said, well, I'm interviewing Paul Feinbaum. You know, what, what would you ask him? And it was funny because a friend of mine from high school, one of my best friends, he has this distinct memory, I guess, of you poking fun at the high school play we were in. <laughs> Guys and Dolls was canceled, I guess, because of a storm or something. And you and you made a slight dig of like, well, you know, <laughs> whoever was planning to go to that. And it, it's funny just that the memories that people who grew up in Birmingham have associated with you connected to almost everything. At that time, you know, the show kind of had almost a Jerry Springer vibe. You know, you were kind of the ringmaster with a, a lot of these characters. It seems a little less freewheeling maybe than it once was. I mean, there are still moments when things go off the rails, but do you still think that it has quite the spontaneity? Oh, no. I mean, anytime you do something on television, it's completely different. There there are pros and cons. When you work at ESPN and you're on television, the guest list is expanded, but you lose a little bit. And I know that, but television is amazing. Even though I, I prefer radio, people just get used to coming in, flipping on the television and, you know, we're, we're on in Eastern time, three to seven, two to six in, in Alabama. I don't know what people do, but you know, especially as you get later in the show, people just flip it on and if a good guest pops in, they turn it up. I'm always amazed when some people send me pictures when they're around the country at sports bars and it's on. I mean, you forget that it is on national television, but yeah, you, you're always going to lose that. But you can tune in the show on, on any given day and go, oh my goodness, this is as crazy as it was back then. But I think it's good to have expanded the show. Even though I, I really hated to leave Birmingham, you do find that sometimes you just have to go up the next rung and try to keep climbing, so to speak. Maybe it's when you became syndicated with Sirius, or maybe it's when you moved to the SEC network. I was in college at Alabama from 2006, 2007 to 2010. I don't remember the SEC chance being a thing when I started school. And I don't know if that started because you suddenly had people calling into your show from Ohio State and from Michigan and from Oregon to pick fights with Alabama and Auburn fans. And then suddenly there was this SEC pride. I always kind of hated the SEC chant because I didn't. It felt like everybody else was riding Alabama's coattails. But did you play a role, do you think, in in that SEC conference pride? It's possible. Really, I mean, if someone ever did a documentary on this program, which, by the way, is currently undergoing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think 2010 was a really important moment because we went on SiriusXM. And it seems a little less important now when you consider where we've been and uh, what we've done in 10 years. But the biggest thing we tried to do then was, you know, it was us against them. Uh, Big Ten calling, ACC calling, whatever. And I, I do think you started hearing it a little bit. The SEC, I think, is also involved in that. They started promoting it. And it just started happening. I, I've never bought into it as the so-called face of the network, voice of the SEC. I've never believed that fans really root for other groups. And, and I have some evidence of that. When Auburn played for the national championship against Oregon and won in 2010, Alabama fans were rooting against them. I mean, I know that for a fact. 
And it, it was happening again in 2013. And you always get, oh, Paul, I, I root for both schools and let's say play each other. No, you don't. I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. Georgia yeah. fans don't root for Florida. Tennessee fans don't root for Alabama. That's what makes the SEC what it is, except it's only when we're fighting the North versus South battle, which I think we're going to hear less of in the future, at least on our show. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we look at Paul Feinbaum's legacy. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you, that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned the documentary. I understand that you might also be working on a, a sitcom. Is that right? Is that something you can talk a little bit about? Yeah, I shouldn't, but I will. The documentary was something that came later than the sitcom, but because of the pandemic, things are clearly on hold a little bit. But there is a group of people that are in Hollywood who are putting the, the teeth in that. The sitcom is legit. I'll try to tell the sitcom story very quickly. I know otherwise we could be here till Labor Day. But two years ago, I received the call. I happened to be in L.A. in Beverly Hills at the time doing a show. And a guy heard me on a podcast. I had been in Washington, D.C. two years ago. I went by to do a podcast at Kornheiser's restaurant. And somebody heard it. A guy in L.A. heard it. And he called a guy who used to be a big time television producer. And we started talking and developing. And last summer, uh, this is an interesting tale. We went out to LA, met with some studio heads. And there was something about the show, it just didn't connect. So we ended up moving on from one of the TV people. And through my, uh, this sounds really terrible from a, you know, poor guy started as a sports writer, but my talent agency at CAA. <laughs> um, it's okay. <laughs> never said that before. He started looking around. As, I mean, it's based in Beverly Hills, so you can imagine their connection. He ended up finding a very successful producer who had just left a major network and had gone to, to work at another production house. He said, you know what? I really love this idea. Let's regroup. We had some calls. It started getting off the ground. He brought in a writer, another producer, and finally, a fairly well-known actor in Hollywood heard about it during the pandemic. He said, I want in. And it's really cooking right now. Uh, we had a Zoom call the other day, and I, I have to tell you, uh, this is off the record, of course. Um, <laughs> but you're sitting there looking at a guy, and, and you know, I've seen him before. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about, you know, somebody like Matt Damon here, but I mean, this guy in, in sitcom circles is fairly well-known. And, and he's asking me all these questions about me. The idea for the show is more a little more toward the beginning of my career in Birmingham than now. 
they wanted to develop it. And it was just amazing. I'm, I'm saying this is surreal. I'm talking to a guy who wants to play me in a sitcom. So that's where we are. Uh, they're getting close. They're obviously like everyone trying to figure out what the television seasons are going to look like. So they're about to make another run, which would mean a proposal to the four major networks and who knows who else about this idea. And I'm just a bystander, so to speak, even though I'm, I'm sure I'll have a big fat title if it ever hits and uh, go out and buy myself an expensive pair of sunglasses and a smoking <laughs> jacket and sit in the back and uh, y'all cut. But I think it's really progressing. So if you say that it's kind of focusing on your early career, does that mean it would be kind of a period piece like set in the 90s or would it be modern, but just a younger Yeah, I I mean, I think they feel like there's more potential with somewhere 15, 20 years ago, somewhere in Birmingham, uh, maybe mid 90s, maybe not. I'm not sure how they would do it yet. They still haven't quite figured that out, but they want a younger Paul Feinbaum. And can you blame them? (laughs) (laughs) I guess one question that kind of sticks in my mind is like, can the facsimile be nearly as entertaining as the real thing? You know, the, the spontaneity of somebody calling into your show and, oh, wow, I just poison trees in Auburn. You know, do you worry about the scripted version potentially paling comparison? I don't know. I mean, I'm still kind of in the bug-eyed stage stage of it all, even though this has been going on for two years. I never thought it would happen. Even last year, meeting with the head of ABC Entertainment, CBS, it, it was, that was just like, what am, I, what am I doing here? But I could tell pretty early on. I mean, we, we had four or five meetings. I didn't totally believe that project, even though I was one of the key people. This one I do. I mean, they, they've come up with some pretty funny ideas. The only issue I have is forget living in Alabama. Will I ever be able to visit Alabama again after this, if assuming it hits? <laughs> <laughs> Would it be fair to say, I guess, that you are kind of in the stage of your career where you are trying to determine, like, you know, what is your legacy going to be? Yeah. I have said that about a number of people, including Nick Saban, where I said a couple of months ago, I think he is now in that legacy phase. I I don't know if I take myself that seriously. I really don't. I mean, but you do come to a point and some of it is dictated by internal things like contracts. And uh, it's been reported a few times uh, that my contract is up next year, which opens up a conversation. What are you going to do then? And that's not just my decision. I have a, a wife who is from Birmingham who loves Birmingham. And really, I was shocked when she said, let's leave to take this job in in Charlotte because she was chief of staff at St. Vincent Hospital. She was at the absolute peak of her career, but she thought this was an opportunity. So you you now go, okay, maybe we're at a point where we should do what she wants to do. I think that would be common sense. I'm not giving a manifesto here on marriage. Although I've been married 29 years. I feel like maybe that maybe that's my next career. Yeah. <laughs> you can be a marriage columnist. We'll find a spot for you at AL.com. Start going to uh, cheap hotels and doing seminars. <laughs> but it's an intriguing question. And you get to the point like, what else do you want to do? I would say right now, other than what I do every day at ESPN and the SEC, I mean, the sitcom is probably project number one. You know, I think there are plenty of people who would agree that you can't really understand the South without understanding college football and college football fan culture. You have been in the thick of it for 40 plus years now. How have you seen the South change since you first started covering college football in the 70s? I think it it has closely followed. I I know that this is a tough time in American history, but I think it's closely followed everything else that it's gotten progressively better. It's bigger than I ever imagined it. But the thing that still tugs at my heart, though, is the passion from people. And it's really no different today than it was when I first started. It's gotten bigger. 
uh, more expensive, but people literally live their life, revolve their life around the college football season. It doesn't matter whether you're in Knoxville or Auburn or Tuscaloosa, Oxford, Mississippi, it is that important to people. And I've come to appreciate that because I, you know, we both had uh, similar upbringings. You know, Memphis was an interesting city. Growing up, I was more of a basketball fan than I was a football fan. There, there wasn't really a team there. There were a lot of teams around. So I didn't have the Alabama experience a lot of people in Birmingham and Tuscaloosa have or Auburn and Montgomery. But I really appreciate it. And, you know, being out there on the road as much as I have, and it's never dull. I sometimes question, you know, the amount of time that people put into it, the amount of money. But... I can't be critical of it since I, it's been my life as well. I've tried to be detached from it to a certain degree, but I also have to appreciate what I do every day is communicating with people who, who genuinely love college football. How have you changed in the last 40 years? I mean, you mentioned the detachment, but surely something has changed from you when you started out in the 70s to today. It's amazing. Uh, it's always it's always cool to try to, try to uh, psychoanalyze yourself. I I don't know if I've changed that much. I still am passionate about what I do. I care what, about what I do. I, I let things bother me as much today as I did as a young reporter. And I think some of that just comes with your makeup. I mean, other than being older and you know not being as concerned as I was with my first job, whether my water and heat and power and phone would all be turned off because uh, I failed to pay the bill, which is a true story. I... I, I I don't know if I'm a whole lot different. I still try to look at it through the prism of that young, idealistic student on campus who wanted to change the world. And when I got to Birmingham, I was determined to make a difference in my own field. And I don't attack every show like that, but I'm cognizant of what's happening. I'm somewhat naive, my friends tell me, uh, (laughs) about myself. I still sometimes can't believe what I'm doing. I mean, I've, I've been on a lot of really, uh, you know, cool shows at ESPN, and I'm, I was doing a Sports Center hit the other day, and I looked over on the screen, said, you know, coming up next, Paul Feinbaum on, well, I, I'm like, even now, I've been at ESPN for seven years, it's still kind of weird to see that. It doesn't get old. Now, what I do next, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of things I, I would still like to do, but I, I, I think the answer to your question is I don't think I've changed very much. The things that you still want to do, are they in the sports arena? Do you still enjoy covering sports day to day? Is there anything else that you'd be interested in covering? Yeah, I mean, I've always yeah, I had a hankering for politics, but I would say no, no more. I mean, I think it's just too toxic. It's too off the charts for me these days. There's no such thing as legitimate political commentary. It's just throwing tear gas at one another. I've always had a hankering to teach. I know that sounds like every uh, out-of-work sports writer or sportscaster. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach and write my novel. Well, I'm not going to write a novel. I've tried. About 20 years ago, I, I made an attempt a couple of times, and uh, I finally read it after about 150 pages. I said, this is just pure garbage. I said, <laughs> I said, and I tried it again, and it wasn't any better. I said, you know what? I'll, I'll leave that to others. But I've always wanted to be uh, in a classroom and in all candor. I've had communications with schools about that. and. It's never really been the right time, and it may never be the right time, although it's something that does intrigue me. There have been a number of hosts and networks and sites that, you know, I don't know if they would explicitly say they've modeled themselves after you, but they certainly seem to have tried to tap into maybe some of the same audience mindset. But where you might step in and, you know, push back and tamp down on some people's worst impulses I think of, you know, Barstool and maybe Clay Travis and people like that as inflaming people's worst impulses. How do you feel about this generation of 
pundits who are coming kind of in your wake? And what do you think of the landscape of sports media going forward? I think the, the two you mentioned are extraordinarily popular. Uh, I know Clay really well. He, uh, in fact, asked me to go in business with him about 10 years ago. And I looked at his model and uh, you know, maybe I left a lot of money on the table. But <laughs> I'm, uh, he's doing it the way he believes he, he should do it. Uh, Barstool is a, is, a, is a fascinating thing. I, I've done their podcast a few times and uh, the reaction is you know, pretty much unlike anything I've ever done before. So, I mean, I, I'm never going to sit around and critique people who have been successful doing different things because I didn't follow a model either. I was scorned by the veteran sports writers at the Birmingham News. Uh, I, I once told uh, Rick Bragg, who we all know, and we had lunch together at the beginning of his career. He was, at, I think, at the Aniston Star. I was sitting alone at, uh, I think it was Brian Hall. They used to let sports writers have lunch. Man, that was a big deal for me back then. <laughs> and he came over and started asking me uh, advice about uh, the, the industry. And I think he was one of the only, probably the only time that anybody had done that. I told him, not to go into it. <laughs> and and he, he did okay for himself. Yeah. You know, Pulitzer later and, uh, you know, one of the most popular teachers in the academic world right now. But to me, everybody has to do it differently. I fought the establishment and, and really what those guys are doing is the same thing. I mean, I, I see some of the tweets and some of the content and my eyebrows may raise a little bit, but no, that's fair. I'm, people have done that about me forever. You know, you mentioned fighting the establishment. That's certainly how your career started out. And then at one point you basically built jocks into the only sports network that mattered in Birmingham. And, and now you work for the biggest sports network in the world. Do you think that you have become the establishment? Yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> I mean, you know, I had a guy uh, call me the other day from Birmingham and it was really funny. Yeah. I just interviewed Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC. And yeah, I mean, I, I, we interviewed the commissioner every week or two. And it was my concept. I, I said to him, I said, let's think in terms of FDR and the fireside chat uh, during the war. We're, we're having you on. This is probably the 10th time we've had you on. I'm no longer playing got you, uh, you know, hey, are we going to have a season or not? And the guy called me in. And he said, he said, I can't believe that conversation you just had with Sankey. I said, what do you mean? He said, he said that was like Sean Hannity interviewing Donald Trump. And I'm <laughs> like going, you know what? The guy's probably right. Because I was just trying to get a, a scene setter because there's going to be another conversation this week and the next week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's not the Paul Feinbaum that all the ideologues loved and, and ran out and got the newspaper for back in the mid 80s and 90s. But I'm also one who will go on television and just crack down on the establishment as well. I mean, I don't know which one I am. In some ways, I am part of the establishment, but I still have a streak in me that will not tolerate lying and BS and misleading. So, I mean, I, I'm a little bit of a contradiction. I mean, easy for me to say, but but I, that's how I feel. You know, I've, I've learned to keep my mouth shut at times. And my wife is always telling me, you don't need to say that. You don't have to say everything on your mind. I mean, sometimes just be smart. I think that's the biggest change. Back to your question that I never could answer correctly a, a few minutes ago is that I have learned to be quiet a little bit, but it's I'm, I'm not that quiet, though. You know, to close, I guess let's talk a little bit about, you know, it's almost a coaching tree, this kind of network of guests who have turned into personalities in their own right that have come onto your show, uh, you know, the legends and things like that. There's a moment, I guess, that sticks out. But when Tammy died in a car crash and, you know, the outpouring of support that your listeners had for her and that kind of speaking to whether it's after the tornado or even after the trees in Tumor's Corner were poisoned, that, you know, sometimes people can set football aside and come together over certain things. 
It doesn't seem like the pandemic is one of those things yet, for the record. But what do those moments mean to you? What did her legacy mean to you? Yeah, I, I would certainly put her death as one of the most meaningful things that, that's ever happened. She died and was killed on a Friday. It was the uh, next to the last weekend of, of the college football season. And I'd, I'd been informed of it uh, earlier in the day, and we really weren't sure what to do with the story. We were in Athens that day doing our show. Um, we had Kirby Smart and some other people. So we, we decided to bring the story on at five o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock. And it, it overwhelmed everything. And it continued to do that for days. Uh, and the reaction of people, we've had some pretty well-known callers pass away before, but but nothing was like this. And, and what made Tammy's story even more dramatic was the fact that she was driving in her car. She was on Highway 280 and the an 18-wheeler went over the uh, the median, and it, it killed not only her, but her her three-year-old granddaughter. And it was just uh, a moment that was the time, it seemed like time had stopped. And uh, a day or two later, her daughter called me, and she said, would, would you come uh, to Birmingham and speak uh, at the funeral and give a eulogy? And I said, are you sure? And, and I, I ended up doing it, and I, I would rank it among the most satisfying things I've ever done. Not not that, you know, speaking or saying anything about her was any different than the minister or anyone else, but just to see the people in that group. And we had so many callers, many had never met her, showed up at the church in, in Shelby County. And it was just a, a stunning uh, moment. You know, whenever I, I do get down and there are plenty of days when you do, and the audience is as fractured as it is. You know, I think of those moments, moments that uh, that really do resonate. I mean, I had a lady call in the other day. Uh, she said her mother was in a nursing home in north uh, north of Birmingham, and she was close to being put in the hospice. And the only thing that the thing that upset her the most was that they took away her television, so she couldn't watch our show. She's ninety nine years old, and you know. I am moved by that. And I think, I think I'm more affected by it now because as you march through time, you realize this, I mean, I'm no longer 35 years old and think this will last forever. You know, it won't. So you do start to appreciate the moments a little bit more, but I don't think you can get hung up though on even, even the Tammy moment and and let it affect you too much. I mean, you, you have to appreciate the importance the program has, but you also have to understand they are showing up every day because they have a passion for college football. And, you know, wh- whether I'm there or not, that is not going to change. Well, I'm not entirely sure I, I buy that part. I think that you certainly play a big role in it, but we can leave it there. Thank you so much, Paul, for your time. This was wonderful. The pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much. And that's all the time we have this week, folks. Thank you so much to Paul Feinbaum for being generous with his time. You can find him basically everywhere on the SEC network, on the radio, on Twitter. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, sharing with your friends, and giving us a five-star review. And follow Reckon on all of our social channels and check out our new site, ReckonSouth.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.